The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to bring in our next guest, Matt, because he's got a lot of explaining to do. Steve Matthews, U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News. Steve, I want to start with this balance sheet thing. It's June 1st. People are telling me this is an important day. The Fed's going to be shrinking the balance sheet. How did they do that? What does it mean? And, and what should we be looking out for? So, yes, today is uh, the official start of uh, QT or quantitative tightening. And uh, the Fed basically, uh, since, uh, since COVID happened, started increasing the size of the balance sheet by buying treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities and dub essentially doubled the size of the balance sheet to nine trillion dollars. And now they've realized that all of this money sloshing around the system, plus low interest rates, uh, has created inflation, and they've got to get that under control. So they're cutting the size of the balance sheet by about uh, a trillion dollars uh, a year. And they're not selling assets, but as the assets mature, as Treasury bills or Treasury notes uh, uh, come due or mortgage-backed securities, when they mature, they are not reinvesting the money that matures. And by that, by that means they will gradually shrink the, the balance sheet. By Thank goodness they were buying mortgage bonds for the past couple of years. Because <laughs> right. I was able needed. to get my house at only twice what it cost the last time it sold, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that, that's right. Super they may, helpful. They may have overdone it a little bit on the housing side. And in fact, that is the, uh, one of the big debates at the Fed right now is what to do with all the mortgage-backed securities because they're not maturing. I mean, th these mortgage-backed securities are, you know, 10 years, 30 years. Uh, you know, people don't – when you sell your house, the MBS that's associated with it will you – know, the mortgage is paid off. But – People don't sell their houses that frequently, so getting down, getting rid of the MBS on their balance sheet is going to take a long time, which is why they're thinking about selling MBS as well. It's crazy that they even thought it was necessary at the time. Like, when we get into the pandemic, did they say, we better make sure that people can, can buy houses? Yep. I well, mean, they already had houses, right? It worked. Or, I mean, the housing market was strong all through the pandemic. Yeah, there, there was a great deal of fear. You had, you know, you had the unemployment rate went up to around fifteen percent. There were predictions that it could go to thirty percent. I mean, Jim Bullard was saying you could have just historically high unemployment. The whole economy was shut down. There were problems with the financial system. So I think that you know they get a pass for their initial response. But where you can criticize them fairly is they were not very fast in, in realizing, okay, things have changed now and they need to start. Well, 
and now the White House reality. <laughs> and now the White House wants us to believe that they're solely responsible for inflation. This is fascinating. In the last couple of days, we've seen President Biden really pass the buck um, a couple on a couple of occasions. Now he's saying like. You fix it, right? <laughs> well, um, the, 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 is the Fed really the only uh, body in the U.S. that has anything to do with prices and price stability? I mean, did the influx of trillions of dollars in fiscal spending not have anything to do with it? C- clearly, the fiscal spending, fiscal and regulatory policy feed into inflation. And what's happening, you know, a a lot of what has happened was initially out of the Fed's control. However, the the fair point is, from the Fed's standpoint, is they accept it. They accept the idea that the central bank is responsible for inflation. Maybe not in the very short term, but in the medium and long term. And, you know, they think that's right, that, uh, you know, it's their job to have price stability. You know, it's in the law. They have the tools to bring that about. They are supposed to look at what's happening with fiscal policy and you know make a judgment of how that's going to feed into inflation, and they got that wrong. So, I mean, they take responsibility for kind of screwing it up. And well, it, was, it was interesting to hear Janet Yellen That's as well. where I wanted to go. What, <laughs> Say, what, do, what do you make of that, Steve? That she's saying she was wrong about inflation. Does that mean— the Fed also believes it was wrong about inflation. What do you take away from they, her comments? They've admitted it already. She yeah. was just a little bit late to the party. Yeah, P- P- Powell has said that in so many words. He has not said that I'm sorry. perhaps with the clarity <laughs> of Janet Yellen saying, hey, we just we just blew it. Right. But right. he has said that in so many words that they, they totally missed the boat. And, you know, that's why we're recovering so quickly now to do these 50 basis point hikes, which are going to happen in June and July and and maybe in September as well. Yeah, if you if you believe Waller every single meeting until they get inflation (laughs) back down to the Fed's 2 percent level, right? Well, until they see clear and convincing evidence is what uh, Powell said uh, the other day. So, you know, the real debate at the FOMC right now is on September. It's pretty well locked in that we're going to get a half point increase in June and July. And, you know, you've had Waller come out uh, basically endorsing 50 basis points for uh, September. But the flip side is you have like Rafael Bostic, the Atlanta Fed head, saying maybe we'll pause then. (laughs) That's what the market selected earlier in the week. All right, Steve Matthews. U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News. He is based down in Atlanta. We should do a whole show with him. We could do a whole show with him. I mean, he covers everything. He's been doing it for a long time, and uh, he knows what's going on. So we love getting a few minutes of his time. You got the Fed rolling off this balance sheet. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Coming into this year, we're reading a lot of preview notes for 2022. One of the themes was volatility. Get ready and get comfortable with volatility. And boy, were they right. And that applies to today because just earlier this morning, 
S&P was up 30, 32 points. Now we're down 28 points. I don't know why. I'm looking at my Bloomberg terminal, but maybe Jess Metten, uh, she joins us here in our Bloomberg radio studio. Maybe she can tell us she's a Bloomberg Markets reporter. Jess, I know things are moving around here. We saw the yields pop up. I mean, what are you seeing in the equity trading this morning and maybe over the last week or so? A big thing is yields again and, and having them spike. And a lot of it has to do with investors recalibrating and pricing in potentially more aggressive moves after the next two Federal Reserve meetings. Jerome Powell, Fed chair, had signaled that there would be 250 basis point moves at the next two meetings. But investors were hopeful, especially because a number of Fed speakers have come out recently suggesting that potentially they could maybe debate whether there could be a pause in raising rates, especially since now we have the Fed balance sheet runoff starting yep. today. But now, it, because a lot of these inflation indicators still very elevated and even outside of the U.S., looking at what's happening in right. Europe, that's causing those concerns that central banks potentially have to be even more aggressive. And now we're seeing them trying to bake in potentially bigger rate hikes coming up after those two meetings. So we also have today's the first day of reducing the balance sheet. And are we going to feel the effects immediately? I mean, obviously, we're seeing a jump in rates right now, but that's unlikely that all of a sudden it kicked in at like 10.09, right? Right. <laughs> right. Um, but are we going to start um, hearing about this right away? Or are market participants going to say, there's no liquidity? And great question. And this has been telegraphed so much. And Fed Chair Jerome Powell has tried to be careful with his language and Fed speakers in recent months just signaling that this would be coming. So investors have known for months now, and a lot of it potentially has some of it been priced in, but there's not a ton of historical precedents to go on because if you remember to the last time we were going through this, the Fed was much more patient and cautious during that time period, even when it first began, started trying to raise rates after the financial crisis in December of 2016. Um, 15. And then obviously a couple years later, once we got to 2017, that's when the Fed eventually started their balance sheet runoff. And as you know, in the fall of 2018, that's when there was obviously less liquidity in the system. And there was a big bout of volatility that we saw in with the S&P 500 teetering on the brink of a correction that December. But the Fed did reverse course and stopped hiking rates. And then eventually six months later, mm -hmm. they began cutting rates. But it's tough to see if that could even be the case this time around, just given how high inflation is right now. And so that doesn't really give investors conviction that you would see an about face like that with a central bank. You know, you look at the S&P, the chart of the S&P 500, we're beginning June, right where it started May. Why did we go through all of that rigmarole of the month of May when we're back at the same place we were before. That's volatility. We are. And it's as if a lot of these seasonality indicators, if you think of, say, for instance, April historically supposed to be a strong month, was not for the S&P 500. You look at May, sell in May and go away. That yep. did not follow the case. And June, historically, that June swoon, that actually hasn't been the case over the past decade. So you look at some of these seasonality indicators, it's almost as if they haven't followed the pattern. But one of the key things is when I talk to strategists, they always bring up the midterm election years. So if you mm -hmm. look at that seasonality, indicator we are actually following that and the second quarter is typically the weakest on average so LPL financial crunch the numbers going back to 1950 and on average the second quarter usually has a drop of about a little over two percent for the S&P 500 and June is the weakest month in the in the midterm election years and in the presidential cycle so in that case it could potentially not bode that well for equity markets but again the S&P 500 is off to its worst start to a year since 1970 so since because it's dropped so much that could potentially give it some room to 
to move higher, but it's tricky to see, especially now that we have that balance sheet runoff starting, if that's going to ignite another jolt of volatility in markets. Do you use SEAG yeah, on the Bloomberg yes. terminal? It's the, great. Paul, the seasonality chart is so cool to use. With, what is it now? Uh, well, put in any index or okay, any okay. stock. So okay. I have the S&P in. Okay. And then you type SEAG go. And the pro tip is on the toolbar, you click heat map instead of line. Okay, got it. Um, yep. Here, right? Yep. There you go, heat map. And then you can see the seasonality. You could bring it out like 20 years, and it just tells you, like, historically, this is a good month or a bad month. How long have you been at Bloomberg? <laughs> 20, <laughs> 22 years. <laughs> You're just the, 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 I mean, you are the function dude. I, I, I well, I, I, I 22 have, years. I, I love this machine. Um, <laughs> uh, no, so I just think it's a, a fascinating tool. Now, in terms of, um, you know, bottoms up analysis, we thought that there was going to be, uh, that, that, that profits were going to continue, that margins were going to stay wide, that things were going to still be awesome this year. And um, now it looks like analysts are bringing down their expectations of awesomeness due to inflation, right? They are. So Bloomberg Intelligence crunched these numbers and the forward earnings per share forecast revisions for the S&P 500 are trending lower for each quarter until 2023 now. And especially that has a lot to do with what's happening with margin pressures and really tied to inflation. And in Gina Martin-Adams, her team at Bloomberg Intelligence, they crunched the inflation discussions in earnings calls for the first quarter. And those discussions for, on inflation, they continued to rise in those calls, more than five mentions on average, and they increased more than 20% from the fourth quarter and over 23 times from their low in the first three months of 2020. And one optimistic sign supply chain concerns it did ease for a second quarter however they still remained 90 percent higher from a year ago so those are two issues that companies are still battling and especially depending on the types of companies we've had when you're looking at retailers not necessarily all equal right now you had target walmart ending up lowering their profit forecast for the year but then you had macy's come in and raise their sales guidance and then you had on the discount retailers general uh, dollar general and dollar tree also doing much better than expected and then you have williams sonoma that ended up doing much better than expected so depending on where you are in the retail space and in looking right. at that the discretionary companies it's it hasn't necessarily been equal and some of the higher end has held up a bit better than on the lower end all right so before you got to bloomberg news you were at wall gosh, street journal U usa today USA wall today. street journal before that she was an aggie aggie <laughs> texas a&m now texas yes. a&m is in college station Texas. I've never been, and there's a reasonable likelihood that I will never get to College <laughs> Station. In 30 seconds, tell me about College Station, Texas. So it's a great place. It's in College Station, Texas, obviously, and it's a school that has more than 50,000 students, so you're wow. in a small town, but there's a 50, ton of... 50, more than 50,000. And I mean, it's been a while since I graduated. I was class of 2010, so I've been out <laughs> for a while now, but it's one of those uh, definitely tradition-based type yeah. schools, football Was rules. your 10-year reunion ruined by the pandemic? <laughs> did not go to unfortunately no 10-year reunion for me because of the pandemic that happened That's but uh you know i will I'll make it back down there did for, you go to football games oh football was football's religion down there and especially even high school football is oh I, yeah even, friday night yes, lights baby. exactly that's like what the worst like. <laughs> thing ever when i moved to westchester is i realized they play football on, on saturday. saturday afternoons what a stupid 
forget. All it's right, all Jess, about Friday night games. Good stuff, Jess. Jess Metton, equities reporter for Bloomberg News and a proud Texas A&M Aggie getting the latest on College Station, Texas. Let's check in with David Katz, president and CIO of Matrix Asset Advisors. David, you just heard uh, Tim Fury from ISM talking about some pretty good manufacturing numbers. How does that dovetail in with kind of how you guys are thinking about this economy as you think about your portfolio? Well, we think that this is going to be a difficult year for the Fed to slow inflation yet keep the economy going. But we think they likely will be able to pull it off. And the data that you were just giving and the conversation you just had sort of supports that. Um, the economy is still strong. You just had a, a, a few banks speak in the last week or two that talked about consumers being good and businesses being good and loans being up. So we think the economy is hanging in. Uh, psychologically, it's a tough environment with the Fed talking about raising rates as much as they are. Uh, but we're hopeful that we'll uh, be able to walk across that tightrope. So even if the Fed raises rates another 50, 50, 50, and 50, is it going to be okay? Well, we think the Fed is talking a very hawkish game. So it set the expectation for a 50 and a 50. Um, we think that we're going to start to get some inflation relief by the late summer, early fall. And as that takes hold, we think that by the year end, the Fed might be able to be a little bit less aggressive than currently feared. Uh, it's easier for them to talk a hawkish game than to actually execute a hawkish game. So we're hoping that that's what's going on right now. The market originally thought the Fed was behind the curve. You don't hear them talking about that too much uh, right now. People understand that the Fed is going to break the inflation psychology and the inflation cycle. Uh, it's just a question, can they keep the economy going in the meantime? And from where we sit, we definitely think that's going to be the case in 2022. But we also think that uh, 2023 still can be a reasonably good year in terms of the economy. All right. So if I do have that kind of, you know, 12 month plus horizon, what sectors or what names are you guys uh, looking at these days? So, that, so that's a great question. We think the best way to navigate this market is to have that 12 month time horizon. There are a lot of stocks that have a lot of short term uncertainty. But on 12 months, they should be a lot higher. So sectors that we like. Uh, first and foremost, we think that the financials are going to be a very good place to be over the next year. Uh, we think you can get involved right now with a lot of beaten down technology. So we went into 2022 a little bit wary about technology. Uh, they've got beaten down enough that uh, there are many opportunities right there. Um, you know, with the mega cap tech, we think is a good place to be. And then sort of one-off uh, type of stocks, like we like Starbucks here, we like Air Products here. Uh, Paramount um, is a, uh, a solid business at a very attractive valuation. The CEO just bought $15 million worth of stock, uh, or $20 million worth of stock, excuse me. Uh, Starbucks, the CEO, bought $15 million worth of stock. Fiserv, you had some fairly uh, significant insider buying. So we would take our cue from companies that are buying back stock, from insiders that are buying stock. Um, and, and if you can buy a, a great company like Google at 16, 17 times earnings, we think you're going to do real well. All right, David, good stuff. Appreciate you sharing some of the names you guys are working on. David Katz, President and Chief Investment Officer of Matrix Asset Advisors. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, 
data-powered transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. I guess, you know, what we've all probably experienced over the last couple of years during this pandemic is we're doing more and more stuff from home. We're working from home. We're going to school at home. Thankfully, those days are over for most of us. Uh, but it just kind of goes to the issue of identity security, data security, all that stuff. It just really comes down and puts it really front and center for a lot of folks. Fran Rosh, he's the CEO of Forge Rock. Uh, they are a company that focuses on identity security. So it's a good person to check in with. Fran, thanks so much for joining us. Um, please tell me you've got a better mousetrap for identity security. I mean, I got a million usernames and passwords out there. I've got thumbprints. I got facial recognition. Where do you think we're going here? Great. Thanks for having me. And I think we do have a better mousetrap. And I think what we've seen is this industry evolve. I think people used to think about identity as a security solution. How do I block the bad guys from getting access to account data or company information? And we've seen an evolution where our CIO and CISO customers are under increasing demand from the business line, the guys gals responsible for revenue to create better experiences because identity is really the front door to the business, whether it's banking, healthcare, e-commerce, digital streaming, everything's really going digital. So at Fordrock, we've really kind of, uh, you know, been a, a revolution, revolutionizing in a couple different areas, helping our customers create identity experiences that are both frictionless and easy without compromising on security. And that's our objective. But how? How does it work? I mean, much like Paul said, you know, I have a million different passwords for things. I'm constantly clicking the forgot your password button because I have no idea what I entered uh, last time. Is is there uh, a way across all accounts and all devices to figure this out in a simple with a simple solution? I think there is a better way. And, and you know, usernames and passwords have been around for like 50 or 60 years. And we look at them as like a lose-lose situation. They're both a bad experience and they're bad security because everybody uses the same one. So we're working on a better way to identify who you are than that static approach. And a lot of that comes down to bringing AI capability into the identity solution. We can look at your user behavior, device behavior. We partner with companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft who can serve up certain information from your device to find a much more kind of behind-the-scenes frictionless and more secure way to recognize you and eventually eliminate the username and password. And this is a great application for AI. So how do we get there? I mean, what we're sold, right, Paul? Yeah. yeah. So uh, what do we do so that ForgeRock can um, get rid of usernames and passwords across all of our things? A lot of it is change management. So many of the organizations that you create those usernames and passwords with have been around for decades. They've got a lot of legacy systems and applications and infrastructure, and this requires change, change on their behalf to kind of make that replacement of legacy technology with something modern like Fordrock. And it also means change for the consumer. And a lot of consumers, we say we want to get rid of the username and password, but it's still we're comfortable with it. So it's a lot about change management, which is why we're getting out there and engaging with enterprises, banks, healthcare, e-commerce to tell them there is something better and to get on let to know the consumer 
that change is okay. You can ditch that old approach, get better experiences and better security. How about fingerprint uh, and facial recognition? How do those kind of rank? They're really important. Um, biometrics is a great way to authenticate you in place of your username and password. And this is where there was an announcement a couple of weeks ago. There are some, been some standards bodies called the FIDO Web, Web Authent Standards that created a way that companies like Microsoft, uh, like Google, like Apple, can take the work that they do around biometrics and authenticating you securely to their devices and then transmit that security to the website you're authenticating to. So it really becomes a way to do those secure biometrics where your fingerprint, your facial recognition stays on the device so you don't have to worry about it showing up on the internet, but also leverage it as a better authentication device than a username and password. So it, it, it's a big driver, but it also means bringing the idea of consumer privacy and saying we're going to leverage that biometric for one thing and one thing only. That's to authenticate you to our website. We're never going to share that information or use it for any other purpose. I gave up my privacy years ago, so I'm not worried about that. <laughs> Fran, thanks so much for joining us. Fran Roche there. Uh, he is the CEO of Forge Rock, trades on the NYSE under the ticker F-O-R-G, and they're hoping to make our, um, I guess, I was going to say internet experience, but I guess it's everyone's all experience for the future, right? Because everything's online now, so. Yeah, I mean, the Bloomberg system, you know, we use the, the fingerprint, and that seems, among other and things. And a username, and, and a, user, a password. Yep. I mean, yeah, we take it seriously. A lot of my, you know, my bank, you know, they use facial recognition. A lot of uh, places are using fa facial recognition, so lots of uh, issues there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.